Welcome to Conversations with Kim. This podcast is about awakening the human spirit, seeing beyond this moment, and exploring alternative paradigms for how we work, lead, and live. I invite you to sit back, exhale, and enjoy the flow. John Desjardins Jr. is a Cree Métis visionary from the island of Cumberland House, Saskatchewan, with a passion for sustainability, diversity, and change. Originally trained as a mechanical engineer, John started his career in the mining industry in 2001. Led by his curiosity, supported by mentors, and driven by his ability to ask bigger questions, John took an interest in community development, economic reconciliation, and Indigenous capacity building. These passions come to life in his current role as General Manager of Great Plains Contracting, as well as his service on various boards, councils, and committees including as president-elect of the Association of Professional Engineers and Geoscientists of Saskatchewan. As a lifelong learner, John has completed a master's in business administration and and is in the process of completing a master's in governance and entrepreneurship in Northern areas. In this episode, John bravely explores the space of economic reconciliation, the challenge of unbridled capitalism, and the cost to society and the natural world when Indigenous worldviews are excluded from our economic paradigm. John calls us to bold action as he dives into tangible solutions for sustainable development and actioning equity issues. He takes us out of our myopic view of time, reminding us to think about the impact of our decisions over seven generations. John's voice rings with truth as he urgently reminds us that in regards to Indigenous engagement and participation, We are past the point of doing the right thing for a social sake. It is now an economic and sustainability imperative. Well, John, thanks so much for making time to be on the podcast today. It's great to have you here. It's my absolute pleasure, Kim. Um, yeah, I'm excited to excited to have a conversation. Yes, I've always enjoyed our dialogue. Like I've said, I see you as such a forward thinker, thought provoker, and your ability to understand policy as well as look holistically what's going on uh, in the world and apply it to what needs to be done today is something I've always admired about you. So before I steal your introduction, I want you to speak, um, if you can introduce yourself in whatever way feels most authentic. Uh, absolutely. Nina John Dejarle, Nina Meiti Uche Kaministikumanagaskak. So I'm John Dejarle. I'm Cree Meiti, identifies Cree Meiti, and I'm from the island of Cumberland House. So right in the heart of the Saskatchewan River Delta. Mothers from there, mothers' family, families from there, and my father's from southern Saskatchewan, Treaty 4, so that. Fort Capel area um, is where he grew up and where his family is. So, Thank you for that. I'm wondering if you can take us to today. What's the space that you see yourself occupying as a change maker? Absolutely. Um, you know, I, I feel I feel very privileged and honored and, and responsible at, at the same time, too. And so the space I'm, I'm really in right now is I guess we kind of need to step back a little bit. And so I started in, I guess, a technical field, very technical field. And that's what I was drawn to as a young person. Um, Growing up in Cumberland House, you know, drawn to the environment. And so the environment was 
uh, we had a very symbiotic relationship there. And so, you know, we look to the land for sustenance. Um, we look to the land for life, uh, water. Um, and so, you know, grew up very much, you know, hunting and fishing, big part of our indigeneity, big part of who we were as people. And so uh, I was very fascinated with, I think, the science of what happened, right? And so, you know, our knowledge systems, as well as to as, as kind of modern science application technique. And so that evolved as I learned through high school, I found that I really had a natural inclination to biology and, and physics and, and mathematics as well, too. And so that just progressed and moved forward. Um, and I, I was heavily invested for probably first 10 years of my career in understanding that. But there was a point where, you know, I saw a disconnect between some of these hard sciences and hard applications and processes. And I found that, you know, we probably spend too much time uh, thinking about them and sharing them, but not enough time in terms of the interface with people. And then people were not necessarily as engaged in this, in the application of these methods and science and whatnot. And so that, that really drew me in towards, you know, that people part understanding. And I found uh, and enjoyed learning what I was learning, but sharing it with others. And that naturally just progressed to, I guess, a leadership capacity. And then my knowledge of understanding, you know, the technical side of the world and industry and things like that. Um, certainly, I wouldn't call myself an expert in a lot of areas, but um, absolutely competent in, in, in many. And so um, it naturally progressed. Um, I started to, you know, really enjoy bringing these applications, these knowledge systems and sharing them and, and evolving them with people. Uh, and that moved, um, as I saw myself, I think, develop as a leader. Um, one of the things I saw was space for was, uh, you know, how do you, what was that management aspect? What is that, what does that corporate oversight um, look like? How does that interface with, you know, organizational growth and, and things like that? How, how do you bring people in together? How do you move them all in the same direction? Um, essentially, how do you solve problems, right? And I've always had, um, you know, a, I think a strong belief, as many do, that, you know, people are really instrumental to that, to problem solving. And, you know, it's it's not as, as pure scientific or as pure process or as pure policy. Uh, none of these things really matter if we really can't, you know, bring people into them, part of the solution, part of solution design. And then, of course, the application of those solutions, right? They're truly successful. People are fully engaged in that whole process. Um, you know, and I was incredibly fascinated with organizational leadership. And then that took me into um, business, business leadership, business management. But there was certainly a space there. There was a gap there, in my knowledge, uh, in regards to policy, public policy, uh, government, uh, you know, legal frameworks and whatnot. So my education and my um, my off the side of my desk work took me into that area and, you know, finishing up a map and public policy, specifically governance and entrepreneurship and with Indigenous areas and people. And that started to, I think, fill a space that, um, and then, of course, uh, you know, moving into that area, I think, gave me um, a sense, a stronger sense of responsibility. Um, I think it really opened my up my eyes in terms of how all these pieces fit together of advancing a lot of the challenges we're seeing in community um, you know, socioeconomically with all the outcomes out there, uh, how do you create a great engagement? How do you create a great Indigenous engagement, inclusive engagement, uh, inclusive of all, you know, um, marginalized groups or historically repressed groups? How do you get everyone to participate, you know, in the solutions and moving everything forward? And so, um, yeah, certainly my work, um, my background, my experience took me into that direction and then um, absolutely brought me where I am today. And so working with a company that, 
where its leadership, its governance is very proud of its indigeneity and identity uh, through the manifestation of its, its corporate um, design through its mission, vision, values. And then right down to um, some of the engagement strategies and capacity development strategies. So that's, you know, it's where kind of how I got to where I am in terms of that space uh, to be able to talk through these pieces. And so I think the more informed and engaged we are in a lot of these different areas, uh, engaging in these in the bodies of, you know, knowledge with humility, pick up a lot of these things and we become part of the solutions, not the problem. So as, as cliche as that sounds, it's, you know, I really believe that. I like the start of, you know, this love for the natural world. It doesn't take long um, to figure out the gap really is the people and how do I bridge that gap? And I'm hearing there, you know, I understood the science. I started to understand the people I needed to understand policy. And then from what I've seen in my work, um, you know, it doesn't take long for us then to be well organizations and corporate space is actually one of the biggest defining people, society shaping forces of our time. So if you've got a passion for what started as that passion for the natural world, it is that natural progression to people and organizations, which is where I see you occupying. Absolutely. So we've got this cliche. It's not about the problems. It's about the solutions. Mm -hmm. I always, when I work with people in groups, I always think though, a good problem statement, John, you're an engineer, a good problem statement is what gets us started in thinking that solution. I think it's Albert Einstein that says if he had an hour to solve a problem, he'd spend 55 minutes figuring out what that problem statement is or what question to ask before moving towards the solution. So I want to hear from you. What's the opportunity or problem statement that you feel we need to be addressing at our time right now? What's the number one problem statement? Wow, I think the problem is is there's there's not enough humility in society. Um, you know, I think we think we know too much. We th- I think we think we know more than we actually do. Mm. Um, we cert- we're certainly finding that out with um, you know with reconciliation with what's happening in the world right now. Um, you know, the, the, it, it's people are calling it the tragic discovery of unmarked graves, but you know our people have have known and felt this and have lived this for for time. Um, but society, absolutely, it's that it's that humility and that empathy. I think we're really struggling with, you know, in in, in the corporate world, um, you know, it, it's it's driven by profits. Absolutely, business is about making money. But um, you know, I think it's it's one of the problems um, that we started to pursue as as a society started to pursue those profits unsustainably, um, and what's being left behind um, and what's being up impacted i think most is is you know and we see the world evolving in this way to include factors of esg right and so um been part of a lot of discussion and debates about the merits of esg environmental social governance we used to call things you know corporate social responsibility before um you know where we looked at a lot of these factors uh, and thought, you know, what's the business case behind a lot of these, right? We always wanted to quantify what does that mean in terms of our bottom line if we're more responsible citizens, right? If we have those social licenses to operate. Um, but yeah, that's that's one of the, the challenges in society is, you know, we, we don't step back. We don't think about this. We don't think about the impacts, I think, holistically of our decisions. Um, you know, society has had a, a tenuous a tenuous. Uh, and Canada has had a tenuous relationship with Indigenous people for uh, for a long time. 
And, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of systemic racism and there's a lot of systemic discrimination. Um, and so, you know, we need to challenge our perspective on people's place in, in these things, on the environments, um, you know, prioritizing our environmental, uh, you know, our, our environmental responsibility, minimizing our impacts, uh, and thinking about things, you know, Indigenous people, we like to refer to seven generations, right? And so we need to engage in activities that ensure the sustainability. Sustainability is really woven into the value system. Um, Indigenous people have survived and thrived, uh, you know, places like North America and Canada for tens of thousands of years. And so um, to presume that, you know, we're in the way of development is uh, is sad irony. It's 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 wrong, right? It's, it's fallacy. And so um, I think we offer perspective of sustainability and, and um, you know, I think we, we like to see growth, right? We like to see profits and a lot of those things. But yeah, that problem statement really comes back to kind of this empathy. Uh, and it's not one way, you know, Indigenous people, there's, uh, I've engaged a lot of people outside that circle that are, are really excited to see things, you know, progress in a constructive way, have constructive conversations that I think roll back that, um, you know, that pedantic view, right, in terms of we have the best knowledge systems, the best everything, and so we're going to help you fix things for you, right? It doesn't work. You look at the water crisis issue across Indigenous Canada, um, you know, those solutions are not simple technology, they're not simple uh, infrastructure, but they're integration of those communities and their value systems and their participation in those solutions. So, um, but yeah, like I said, it's, you know, it's, it's kind of that empathy and humility. We need to step back and say, we don't know it all. Mm. How do we figure it out together? You know, how do we come at the table where we're all sitting there and we all have the same seat and we're all sitting at the same height and, you know, we're recognizing um, differences, but celebrating them, not treating them as barriers and then get to those meaningful conversations that really drive good, holistic solutions forward. And I've seen it. I've seen it in so many places. I know it. I've been part of them. Um, and I've, I've seen them happen in other areas. And I know it's, it's, and it's, and it's incredible when people come together like that. The problem is we think we know. Mm-hmm. I'm hearing from you. And, uh, one of the things you're triggering for me right now is during the Black Lives Matters movement, I heard a speaker talk and it was coming from this place of like fueled anger, but it really got my attention when uh, she's an African-American woman. She's like, we've learned your French. We've learned your Dutch. We've learned your English. You've learned nothing and you call us stupid. And I was like, how how true is that as you know, the average, um, I'll speak for myself, white Westerner. What in my systems have I really learned beyond this narrow paradigm in which I've been sold? And one of the things you introduced me to this concept um, that that shook that and reinforced a little bit when we talk about the solutions and what's needed is that realizing the limitations of this myopic scientific value system and opening up to that there's so much more Um, And that other societies and other cultures have this knowledge. And I believe the term that encapsulates this, please correct me if I'm butchering it, is two-eyed seeing. Yep. Can you tell me a little bit more about two-eyed seeing and why it is so important as a way forward from this broken paradigm? Absolutely. Like, you know, as I wouldn't call myself a scientist, but certainly, you know, someone that's highly engaged in, you know, the scientific method and practice and things like that. 
And, you know, my experience with it, absolutely, like it's, it's, it's incredibly important. How do you get rockets into space, right? And, and things like that, you know, very good at explaining how wet is wet, how dry is dry, you know, how hot is hot, um, you know, very, very good at that. And then the other aspect is kind of that sustainability. Um, you know, we don't, we don't apply the scientific method over long periods of time, right? And it just doesn't work very well like that. And so observations and knowledge systems that, that do patterns and things like that, that are incredibly complementary um, to these different things. It's not one or the other, it's, it's certainly complementary. And there's, you know, I found in, you know, kind of in that indigenous worldview, there's things that couldn't necessarily be explained, um, you know, that was, was, I think, took in a lot more in faith and there's gaps there. And then science certainly has helped to fill those gaps, right. And create kind of a stronger system, but yeah, it's that myopic view. There's gotta be one way, right. And there, it, and it's, it's that, that worldview, as we expand that worldview, as we start to look at things, um, you know, with humility, you know, absolutely with, with empathy in terms of our fellow knowledge system holders, then it really, it, it you know, it, it's, it's really a mind blowing experience. I, I think a lot about like the application as it relates to being, you know, I'm a, I'm a very big man. I'm a, I'm a tall, big man. I'm assuming guy. And I'm also very, uh, you know, I have what people call white passing privilege. And so, you know, I'm very fair in complexion. Um, so these two things, you know, I really kind of struggle to identify with, or I really struggle to understand what that meant. Um, but certainly my, I think my journey in becoming more gender inclusive, right. And, and, understanding some of the struggles that, uh, you know, that, that not white passing males go through, um, you know, safety, security, um, discrimination, stuff like that. I think it really helped me to understand, you know, some of the challenges and biases that we have in this world that are just, they're just not right. They're not fair. Right. And, and um, start to challenge, you know, people's, I think, uh, those, those subconscious bias and, and, and people really reflect on you know, kind of that power struggle, right? Is it a power struggle? Then if it's a power struggle, then there's a fundamental issue there. And I think getting people aware of that and stuff like that, but yeah, it's, you know, I think as we think about things from other people's perspective, as we ask the question, as we look across the table and say, what's in it for them, you know, what's their point of view? Um, you know, I think then as we drive towards coming to a common understanding, we get into a better and better place, you know, negotiation historically has been, has told us that someone wins and someone loses. Right. Um, you know, and, and it does happen in that degree, but I mean, I think, I think there's plenty examples of negotiation where if you understand what you're negotiating, we understand what people are winning and losing. Um, I think at the end of the day, you can both be incredibly happy, right? And so uh, organizational growth, health, profit, all that is not about being outsmarting and tricking someone. It's about, you know, driving towards greater value, which I think drives sustainability, right? Mm. And so, yeah, thinking about things from that lens, that intergenerational um, lens, that seven generations, that sustainability, um, thinking about things that, you know, like how do we, how do we temper our expectation on returns and profit and things like that um, for long-term, our entire corporate structure, um, you know, challenges that a lot, you know, investors will invest for short-term gains, you know, on, on shorter-term cycles which pressures agents, um, executives to be able to return, um, to make decisions that are probably not in the best interest of sustainability and stuff like that. And so I think we need to start identifying factors that look at things long-term, right? And so um, where we push factors where uh, we can 
can regulate, start to regulate sustainability and not even go so far as regulated, but at least to incentivize, right? right? To say that's a va- part of our value system, right? That's a part of our performance metric, right? Right there in line with making money. It, it happens. A lot of organizations do it. And so, um, but yeah, there's, there's a lot there, a lot there to unpack, I think. <laughs> I, I, I think you're right. I mean, um, you're dancing around and I, I always struggle to have this conversation because you almost put a, like a a target on your back and people want to like chase you out of town, but you're pointing out some of the fundamental challenges with capitalism is that Mm -hmm. when we value and the winners are just monetary, you're leaving behind all of these other factors um, that create healthy, holistic systems. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I think you have talked, you and I have talked about this a little bit. And so maybe we just dive in, even though it's a little risque, on uh, what are some of the challenges with our current economic model? And I, one of the things I want to hear from you, but one of the things that was really triggering me as you were just talking was how we invest money. I've got a colleague of mine who had a business of their own ran a beautiful business that was like, I'm going to go above and beyond from environmental factors because this is the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. They transitioned into a sphere of operating as an investor. And I was asking them on, you know, are you an ESG type of individual? Are you something else? And they said, you know, it's just numbers on a screen. It doesn't matter to me what the business does. And I thought that was interesting in that I know that's misaligned with their value systems. And yet there's a lot of people that are looking at it's just numbers on the screen. And yet it drives all these actions. There's a ripple effect of what we do with those numbers on the screen. So I want to I want to dive into this. Tell me what you're seeing as some of these um, I don't want to call it flaws, but some of the challenges with capitalism as we've defined it in Western society. Absolutely. And so, you know, one of the things we tell ourselves and one of the things that, you know, we, I guess we tell society is that um, growth and development requires investment, right? And that requires people's um, investment, organizations' investments, funds' investments, government's investments. So they require people investing capital into something, right? To, to kick a project off the ground, um, you know, something, a large operation, some smaller, that's what stimulates jobs, everything like that, right? And so, and that that is true, absolutely, it's fundamentally true. Um, but your the the misalignment is the expectation of returns, right? Um, you know, society is really challenged right now. We're used to making money a certain way. We're used to seeing returns a certain way. We have the last, I don't know how many years, decades. We we look past decades and we look at returns as they line up with commodity prices and things like that. Uh, and that's the expectation. And you're right. As a, you know, as I look at you know my personal portfolio, what are the returns? What are the returns? Um, you know, the investor profile sheets they don't have returns in terms of impact. Um, you know, ESG impact, right? Um, so I can't look at those and then say, okay, which which company is is making more of an impact or more sustainable? I think we're starting to evolve our understanding of that. Um, but as an individual investor. You know, I don't even have the opportunity to look at it, right? Um, it's about returns. It's about returns. And our, our, I think the, you know, capitalism presents that, right? It presents that we need money coming in. We need to generate returns. You know, we need to kind of manage the system uh, of investment versus, um, you know, growth uh, versus shareholder returns. You know, our shareholders expect they own this entity, essentially. They have certain expectations, but 
And that's that's one of the challenges. And I guess, you know, what we're seeing now is the movement in terms of uh, tempering expectations on that or, um, you know, uh, drawing in the question, were those returns really sustainable in the first place? Was our net impact? Um, did we realize and did we cause enough impact um, to our, you know, to the earth and to environment that what we got was, you know, what, what, there was there was a, certainly a cost there, right, to the environment. Um, how do we see things like that? Climate change, right? And so we see things in terms of some of the environmental risks that we've taken um, and realized, and then you know, at the returns from that, and so. That's, you know, that's one of the big issues. And I think we need to temper our expectations on what we should be seeing returns. I don't think we can historically look at returns and say, we need to achieve those again. That's what it used to look like. I think we need to say is in this world that is sustainable, um, if we're to ensure sustainability, if we're to ensure that things become renewable, um, we need to adjust our expectations on that. And people are going to talk about risque. Absolutely, right? What we're telling people, what I'd be telling people is like, you've got your 20, 30% before, but that's not realistic under this. You know, we've, we've, we've exploited. We've, we've gone right. back to the point where it's not sustainable. We need to kind of temper that back and expect a different return, right? And so, but that's a real challenge, right? And so I don't blame people say, hey, you know, there's this organization that is promising 20% and there's another organization promising 10, but they have greater ESG factors. Um, you know, people people kind of look at that within that scope, right? Within that tunnel and say, you know, at the end of the day, I want my returns. My life here is not very long. I need as much impact as possible. And so, um, you know, that's one of the aspects that kind of you know, scares a person. But then you, yeah, you start thinking about how, profile sheets, investor sheets, funds are starting to set up on this way and people are investing in them, um, which is really exciting, right? Because there's a new generation of investors and people that say, yeah, we're inheriting this. You know, we need to make sure if they didn't, it's too bad. We need to move forward. We need to drive greater accountability on sustainability measures and then see that. So, but yeah, I think, you know, fund managers, corporate America would really look to those conversations and say, you know, challenge them, right? Because it challenges our expectation on how much money we think we can make. Yeah, I I think that's like, I love that challenging our expectations. And I, I think you're touching on um, another one of the things that I say, you know, is a challenge of capitalism. And I, you know, I still do believe capitalism is the best of a bunch of bad systems. <laughs> yeah. um, but I, I, I think it's broken, right? It needs some massaging as I think the fast food industry is a brilliant um, capture of this is the only reason it's profitable is that they can sell their product at a low price point. And the assumption, the underlying assumption with capitalism is that you're taking all the risks, you're bearing all the costs, therefore you get all the profits. And if we think about more of a holistic model, as you've been touching on, well, is that true when you see garbage littering the streets? You know, does the fast food industry actually pay for that? When you look at the cost of healthcare from these, do, do they actually bear the cost that it takes to make mm-hmm. the product, make the profit? And I, I think the answer is no. And I, yeah. there's many industries with climate change where we can use that exact same example. Mm-hmm. And I think you're right. I'm seeing a huge shift in people demanding more ESG portfolios and people's values changing. So let's, we've been talking yeah. about the problem. Take me a little bit to the solution. Absolutely. And so I think um, 
you know, you brought up a great example. And so I think about, you know, I think about indigenous participation in resource development. And so one of the things we, we've all heard it, um, it's certainly gaining prominence over the last 20 years is, you know, the idea of duty to consult. It's not a concept. Uh, even idea is not even the law of duty to consult. And so, um, you know, and the regulation around it. And so consultation, is, you know, it's problematic. And I think organizations are still learning how to do it. But a lot of that is in, is in, is in I think, uh, in consequence to, you know, what we just talked about in terms of cost exploitation. So when we look at investment, we think who bears the risk? Um, and that's one of the things I think that was an oversight in, in you know, pure capitalism, um, you know, pure profit centers as we evolve and develop resources and whatnot, um, you know, we see who's, you know, if this goes sideways, who loses, right? But you're right. We never looked at that incremental cost and look at that cumulative cost, you know, the cost of sustainability. And so as an Indigenous person, you know, with rights that are constitutionally protected through, you know, inherent, um, you know, inherent and Indigenous rights, you think about my rights uh, to be able to practice, to be able to live as I've always lived, as my families have always lived, right? And that's my right. That's a constitutionally protected right. It's a legal right. Um, But it's still something that, you know, resource developers struggle with in terms of, you know, putting a box around, right? And so, uh, we're looked at as risk, right? Um, political risk, legal risk, uh, not as partners. And so not as a reality of developing resources. And so, you know, Indigenous people, because the rights are so tied to the land, you know, we're that, we're that, we're that city dump that's collecting all those McDonald's cups, right? <laughs> or, you know, we're, we're, we're bearing a lot of the impact and not receiving the benefits, right? And so, you know, and I'm generally speaking, there's, resource development, there's projects, there's agreements, there's everything, I think that really highlight the better way to do things like that. And so it speaks to the solution, right? And solution in regards to, you know, this unsustainable uh, model of pure capitalism. Ideally, we just need to temper expectations on returns. These big corporations, you know, have certain expectations on returns. Absolutely, they make an economic impact, they create jobs. But at the end of the day, you know, when I think about solutions, I think about wealth. One of the things I really struggled with as an adult was, you know, the concept of, of private wealth versus community wealth. And so I, you know, growing up, community well-being was incredibly important. You know, we uh, we used to like to think about it as, uh, you know, we tried to kind of build people up. But if you grow too fast, you're going to kind of get pulled down. Crab in a bucket is, is referred to a lot. Um, but it's interesting when understanding about that is even wrong. Even that's a fallacy in itself. You know, crabs don't naturally occur in buckets. Someone put the <laughs> crabs in a bucket, right? Um, and so a bucket is, is, you know, person made. And so these things are unnatural. And so it wasn't even fair for ourselves to think about things that way. But kind of back to this community wealth thing, um, it, it's especially important in my community, not the community I'm from, but I mean, I'm speaking in general Indigenous community terms, um, where the impacts of, you know, Canada's relationship with Indigenous people is, is, is terrible, right? It has been terrible. Is it getting better? Absolutely, it's getting better. And so as we move forward, uh, you know, we ha- kind of have to unpack these impacts of development, of, of agriculture, of resource development, of Canada's colonization and development, unpack the impacts of that to Indigenous people, and then start to understand, you know, how do we reconcile that, right? And so how do we first, how do we first 
uh, educate ourselves on those truth pieces, what happened, you know, and, and, and try to empathize with some humility, try to understand, and then, you know, step forward. How do we move past? How do we reconcile a lot of these impacts? Um, and then, you know, that's where a lot of things are coming out that out of that, that are helping to address things like that things, you know, the, the concept of economic reconciliation, right. And so how do, how do businesses um, kind of make up, you know, those profits that were unsustainable, who bore the cost of those, right. And right. so indigenous people didn't bear all the cost of that, but there was certainly some cost there in terms of development, um, you know, land development, sales, seizures, everything like that. And so, um, you know, a lot of the solutions is like, is I think we need to, as a society, reflect to, am I privileged? Like, do I have the opportunity? Um, can I make money? Can I do all these things? And how did I get here? A lot of us think it's, you know, by our bootstraps, right? Um, but in Canada, that's not necessarily true. I've been told a lot of times by, you know, non-Indigenous people, be like my parents, you know, they came here with nothing and they made a great life for themselves. But there's certainly, certainly a privileged and power difference there. Absolutely. One group had everything taken away from them and the other group had everything given to them in terms mm-hmm. of subsidy. You know, so certainly people had to work. I don't want to undermine, you know, immigrants, um, you know, trials and tribulations and a lot of the work that they had to put in. But um, at the same time, things weren't being taken away from them and their culture wasn't being ripped from their hands and, and things like that. Right. And so um, we need to recognize those truths. and then. Uh, figure out how do we reconcile like that, right? How do, I think the solution is in right now, you know, well, let's step back to the problem. Um, you know, I've been really, adri- really wrestling with this quite a bit. The concept of well, not concept, but the idea of equality versus equity. And so, you know, in, in Canada, we try to design, we try to bring everything around. We try to things to, we want things to be equal. We really do in an unfair, unequal world, right? (laughs) (laughs) And so our systems have to be equal, right? And so you have to be, you have to get into, uh, into things, you have to earn things through merit, right? This meritocracy. And I've heard someone explain it quite well in terms of calling it, you know, this, this, you know, white colonial meritocracy, there's this value system in these merits that you know, you look at someone um, and you can even go so further, say, you know, like a, a white male meritocracy. Right. And but the challenge is, is the value system is in the merits don't necessarily line up across cultures. Right. Things are not necessarily important. So people might not necessarily value things in much the same way. And so, you know, equality is we'll never get to equality ever. We're not equal until we address equity mm. issues. Right. And understanding you know, the differences amongst why people, you know, why people are constrained, barriers, um, access, barriers to access to, you know, educational programs, to uh, employment opportunities, um, you know, socioeconomic barriers. And so we really need to, society really needs to understand uh, equity issues before we ever drive to equality. Um, and it's, yeah, it's unfortunate. There's, there's systems of equality put in place of people where they don't have equitable access to those opportunities, right? Talk about glass ceiling, you know, we talk about, um, you know, women in mining, uh, women in industry, right? And so there's a disproportionate um, demographic of, of, of females in heavy industry and things like that, where the industry in itself is, it's neither masculine nor feminine, it's just work, it's just doing stuff. And so, but yeah, that's kind of circling back around to that problem. And some of the solutions is, 
like we really need to step back and with that humility and say, you know, what are some of the equitable challenges that a lot of these groups face, that businesses face, that, you know, that um, organizations face, um, that society faces and, and address those um, because we'll never have equality until we actually address those issues. One of the things that I think is most exciting for me in this moment as you're naming this is what I've seen in probably the last 10 years, that lens, which is that difference between equity and equality, is um, especially when it comes to Indigenous engagement in Saskatchewan, the lens that I've seen is, oh, poor you, let us come help you. We just need to make you like us. (laughs) And then you'll be good. I'm sorry for what happened. Let me make you like us it'll all be good. And I've seen that in a lot of the, um, you know, well-meaning corporate social responsibility practices. What I'm seeing now, and I think this is the part that makes me most excited, is you can win at capitalism and still be miserable. Like you could be the most successful at that game and -hmm. still be miserable. And I think there's a lot of people that have achieved a far, like this huge success in it, in realizing that there's something else, there's something more. So And I'm seeing this inside organizations on, okay, wait a second, there's actually a value to bringing in other perspectives, like you're talking to having diversity on my board, to having diversity inside my leadership team. And it's not um, because I'm doing the right thing. Yes, you are. But there's actually um, the stats and the data is coming out where there's actually a measurable impact on your organization for that sustainability, for that innovation of doing this. And I think that's the part that excites me about this moment is we're realizing that the limitations of the system that we bought will actually never give us what homo sapiens are truly seeking, which is that fulfillment. Yeah, absolutely. There's a couple of things there. Like, I think the fact that like with, with diversity, it's we're well past anecdotal information, like well past peer reviewed published articles on how organizations are healthier, more dynamic. They respond to change quicker. Um, they're much more profitable. You know, they're, they're, they perform on all factors much better than, you know, organizations that are not diverse. I'm, I'm talking about diverse organizations. And how do we defer, define diversity? One of the best ways is you look at the operations, you look at the areas in which you serve. Do you represent the population demographic? Um, you know, are you inclusive and are you diverse, right? And so, um, and you look at that. And yeah, like I said, you know, I, I remember giving a, a speech about four or five years ago, and that was it was on that topic. Right. And so, you know, one of the things I didn't want to say was, yeah, like even then, you know, the information was beyond anecdotal. It really, really was published. It was there and not a lot of not not a lot, if any, um, contradictory uh, academic information that said, no, you know, stick to the middle-aged white male. That's what makes you the most money, right? <laughs> so um, I'd be surprised. It'd be pretty bold of someone to do research in that area. But we're beyond that point. It's it's not about doing the right thing. It's about, it's not, a, it, we're past doing the right thing for, you know, social sake. It's it's an economic imperative. Like it's it's a sustainability imperative. We want to see organizations grow. You know, we've got to the point where, a good example, and this leading into the second point, was you look in Saskatchewan. I've been advocating, I think, for quite a while and for good Indigenous engagement, inclusivity. What does it take, you know, to build capacity so that Indigenous people can not just survive? We need to think past survive. We need to think back, bringing people in, assimilating, you know, 
this is the structure, this is the corporate environment, this is the culture, um, you know, be a good little boy or girl, you know, and climb that ladder and you'll do well like everyone else. That in itself is another farce and another fallacy. But back to this point, everyone's been struggling with Indigenous engagement for the last 30 years, right? And so you look at organizations and um, if you took any organization across Saskatchewan and you actually lined them up and said, is there you know, uh, diversity here. Do you have, you know, population is 16, 17% Indigenous in Saskatchewan. Um, so if you looked at an organization and said, are you, you know, representative? Are you 16, 17% Indigenous? And some might say yes, but as you look at where Indigenous people are within an organization, are they all across the organization, right? Oh, that's true. In, that's true diversity and true inclusivity. And so, um, no, you know, and there'd be very few organizations. The one that are driving quickest to that, uh, inclusivity of Indigenous people, is Indigenous businesses, because there's an aspect there. And so we need to understand that. We need to think about that and study that. One thing I really like to say is that I haven't done any hard research on this, but anecdotally, um, just in effect, because of that culture, because of that strong desire to be inclusive of Indigenous people, they have become inclusive to everyone else. Um, you know, I've, I've just thought it, it's really neat. As I look at our organization, something that you typically don't see a lot of female participation or whatnot, but I mean, it's it's diverse. There's, there's, there's you know, people, um, you know, the, the females that I've worked with felt fairly safe in the organization. They felt inclusivity and diversity was important, right? And so, but yeah, we have, you know, um, you know, people of color in the organization as well, too, that like that, right? They, they like that discussion. That's important to them. Um, because they don't have to check who they are at the door, you know, and just become mm-hmm. this individual, um, you know, without that lacks depth and culture, right? They just they can be, they can be who they are, and it's a safe space. But, but yeah, we need to engage. Like I said, it's we're past the social imperative, especially as it relates to Saskatchewan. Um, you know, Indigenous people are the fastest growing demographic by far, by multiples. You know, and I've heard the discussion. I heard it at you know webinar yesterday. Uh, we do know that. Um, and it's an economic imperative because it's where our capacity has to come from, has to come from. Our ability to grow as organizations in this province depends on our ability to uh, procure, source, and retain good labor. And if we're not engaging in a really good Indigenous engagement strategy, we, we certainly are at risk in terms of our business model, in terms of our ability to grow, to be able to compete, to be able to you know track new project contracts, whatever it may be, whatever industry. Um, so yeah, like we're well past people doing the organizations doing the right thing. And so we're on a trajectory uh, that says that if you don't drive for inclusivity and diversity across your entire organization, um, you're going to struggle to kind of continue to engage and bring people in to serve, you know, a growing market need and to to have more robust business. You know, our business, like our business has no challenge recruiting Indigenous people, achieving, you know, that, that. 16% across our organizations. And there's a lot of reasons for that. You know, Indigenous people are certainly drawn to Indigenous organizations. Our values and our mandate and our, our, our impact is much more than just how much do we re- return to our shareholders, but it's how much impact are we making, you know, in community, right, to our to our clients, you know, through value, through quality, through safety, through um, scope, schedule, budget, through the fundamentals, but even on their strategies, Indigenous engagement, right, we're impacting that way. And, creating that depth but that's that's a big part of the solution and it's much the same you think about indigenous engagement it's much the same in terms of inclusivity and diversity right and so you know does our organization represent it representative 
instead of simply accepting, yeah, you know, females generally don't like this industry. I was like, well, why? You know, we can't accept it. We're beyond acceptance. It's like there's a there's a problem here, right? I've heard it before where I've heard professionals, um, you know, males say, you know, well, you know, maybe it's like nursing. Women like nursing. It's like, no, health sciences is not a female or a male thing. It's just health sciences. Right. I, it's, I love it's caring how we've for been people. Conditioned. Yeah, exactly. And so we start to see our biases and how we're conditioned and start to challenge those, right? And so I love caring for people. There's nothing you know, uh, feminine or masculine, it's, it's just, you know, it's just a feature, right? It's people like doing that. And so as soon as we genderize things like that, that's the big issue. We say that is genderized and that's a, a male thing, right? Turning a wrench is a male thing. Um, you know, no, it's bullshit. It's absolutely not right. It's, it's just turning a wrench, right? It's just a physical action. And so, you're applying uh, your lens of the world and your paradigm on top of this activity that in yeah. itself is relatively benign. Yeah. And then it perpetuates that issue. Right. And then we continue to become uh, not as inclusive, not as uh, diverse. Right. There's those kind of those biased barriers there that are, um, you know, influencing us as we manage and lead organizations. And so, um, but yeah, that's, we need to challenge a lot of that. I like to hear from you, and I know you get this question a lot, and in, in maybe some ways it's not fair um, to put on you, but I, I think you have such an incredible lens on what true action looks like in this. And so I'm listening to this. I'm a medium-sized business in Saskatchewan. I've got this eye on growth, and I'm listening to you talk, and I'm getting a little uncomfortable because I am the owner of this business, and I look at my board and we're probably a bunch of white dudes. We maybe have one female in there who's middle age. And something that you're saying is resonating with me as truth. What's a tangible action? What's a way to move towards meaningful engagement, diversity, um, inclusion, those types of facets as I sit and look at my business and feel like, eee, John's talking about my business. Mm-hmm. I think meaningful actions are, and they're quite bold and I've seen them applied before and they make people uncomfortable, but a set targets on those set diversity targets. Um, they start to challenge. There's some uncon- uncomfortable conversations in regards to, you know, merit, um, you know, uh, bringing people in and, and putting them in a spot just because of, of, you know, what they are, right. Not who they are. Um, but it's those uncomfortable conversations. We set those, we make those bold moves, set those targets. We put people into those seats and start to challenge that. Yeah, like, you know, it's, I think our, our ideas of the merits necessary for this or the competencies, we need to value that diverse thought, right? We don't have that perspective around the table. That in itself is a value. Um, the other thing I've been challenged before too is like, uh, you know, I've heard, you know, we can't set... Um, you know, on a committee or a board, we can't set a an indigenous target, representation target, because, you know, what if there's not enough people like that there? And it's like, I can guarantee you there is. And that's the thing. The more the more diverse you have, the more you recognize, wait a second, we're a little removed from that community, that demographic. Right. And so and that's a human nature thing. I don't really fault people for that bias. I'm going to surround people. I'm going to surround myself with people like me of like mine. Right. And so. Um, we know that's much, part of our human condition. Yeah, it is part of our human connection and our human nature, right? And so, um, 
you know, me, maybe I'm an exception, but I'm certainly a raging extrovert, right? And so, and I love cultures and I love people and I love exploring those differences and learning and it makes me a stronger person and all that type of stuff. But I think a lot of people need to challenge, um, you know, and it, it's not about us challenging our worth and our merit and our and our strengths and our values. It's about us challenge, challenging our point of view because, mm-hmm. you know, it can't be that myopic point of view, right? It's It, it certainly has to be, you know, the more we're expanding that point of view, the better and the stronger and the sensible we become. Yeah. And so, you know, challenge, challenge your own knowledge system. So I always tell organizations, make those bold moves, make those commitments. And then think about that. If you have performance measures on those commitments, you'll start to think hard. People will start to think hard. Wait a second. You know, I have to perform this. I have to report back and saying how we're doing at this. You know, there's an accountability there. And so like, okay, what are we doing? We've tried to recruit, you know, we can't find them. Well, are you looking, are you looking in the right places? Have you expanded your circles? Right. And so uh, even extend that, what is our engagement? What does our development plan look like? You know, we assume one of the, the, the problems with the system is assumes everyone comes with the qualifications. What responsibility do we have? You know, some of the organizations, some of the boards I've sit in, you know, there's, there's a youth member, you know, so there's a, a, a understanding that we have to develop and there's a, there's a huge capacity development um, opportunity. So, you know, board governance, you know, typically look at what's the matrix look like, what are the competencies and fill that accordingly. Do we have people, you know, financial CPAs, do we have people in legal, uh, IT, HR, but I mean, do we have that perspective, right? Maybe some areas it's, it's not as relevant, you know, like a, a large corporate structure, um, but even still as an advisory, that perspective, but there's a, and youth doesn't necessarily need to be someone who's 18. Maybe maybe what that could mean is kind of a junior member, but an opportunity to develop. Because the system says right now, you you go find some governance experience elsewhere. You learn how to, you know, you learn how to govern appropriately. And then you come to the, you know, the big person table, right? And make your big governance, put on your big governance pants. Right. Join your local 4-H club. Get yeah. that experience there. And <laughs> yeah. then after your then, university right? and, so, and then after 10 years in this. And I... I yeah. I think what you're touching on is that we're obsessed with our merit based mm-hmm. society yeah. Yeah. and what we're losing. Like I think about a board that has the perspective of the youth is we're, we're losing that person that asks the question that nobody else in the room is willing to ask that yeah. could change the entire trajectory yeah. of what you're doing. Um, but like you said, when we surround ourselves with a bunch of people who think exactly like us, we're going to repeat from our own limited belief systems because it's very likely that they have that. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's absolutely it. Right. And I I don't think about this strictly from a governance perspective. I think about this from, you know, you look at right through an organization, right. At at, at all levels. And we start to say, what, what do we expect? Do we, you know, do we really want it? Do we want to be inclusive? Do we want to be diverse? Um, Do we value it? Is it not something we put on a pamphlet somewhere and that we're serving this need do you really believe it is really part of your culture and then so then so once you set some accountability measures then you start to think about how are we engaging and developing and why i say a lot of this i wouldn't be certainly where i am today to talk to the things that i can uh, to support to lead uh, to follow to engage if it wasn't for people who saw capability and then helped build the capacity to fill the capability. You know, I've worked with so many people and most of them non-Indigenous, you know, who saw that, right? Um, 
where we've had, and it wasn't like, you know, this person could line up and, and maybe be better than me, uh, more merit, more, all these things is like, there was just, I don't know, there was just something there that made them take a chance, right. And invest and give me opportunity, present me with leadership opportunities that I wouldn't have had the bench strength or the resume to perform, but always in a way that was supportive and encouraging. I knew, you know, people would throw me into the water, um, you know, fully expecting me to swim, but always have a buoy. They're ready to toss <laughs> out, right? And I knew that. And then made me feel like I wanted to try swim. I didn't want to reach out for the lifeline right away, right? And I really wanted to try swim. I always knew there was support there, but we can't lean on merit 100%. We can't expect people to go earn all this and then celebrate someone coming in with everything in the door, because uh, it's very exclusive in that way. Because it 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 um, it's preferent it 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 prefers privilege, right? That system prefers mm-hmm. privilege. It is and 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 you know, and if we're not committed to developing capacity, committed to seeing capability uh, and believing in people, challenging some of those systemic issues and discrimination, gender, uh, you know, race, a lot of those things, then we'll continue to perpetuate the system of privilege. Um, you know, which, and I, I, I speak from this perspective because I have it. I've owned it. Uh, I know it. I've lived it. Um, you know, and I, I have, I have a, a lot of privilege. I have white passing privilege. Um, you know, as I spend time with, with my family, some of the people that don't look like me, that look quote unquote indigenous, more indigenous than I do. I've seen the discrimination, right? And I've, I've observed it. It's very real. Whereas people don't bother me. I also got size privilege, right? And so very large man. And so there's a lot of things that come, I think, very easy to me that wouldn't, right? And then I have gender privilege. Um, I can walk around. I never put too much thought into it. Walking around late at night somewhere in strange places, right? Um, you know, I never had to worry about things like that. So I, I understand what those experiences and the privilege that gives me. And, and it allows me to kind of challenge, you know, I think the systems that prefer that, right? And that just naturally prefer that. Um, challenge people's biases so that we can kind of overcome that and create a safe space for everyone. I'm curious, John, for you personally, because I see you as somebody who stands in two worlds and to be in service of what you're so passionate about and to get the education that you've gotten to climb to the top of organizations, to have the conversations that you've had with people really is a product of you being able to stand in two worlds um, and do it quite well. I'm wondering if you can speak on this, because I think it's important to challenging and shaking that notion of privilege to hear from you on, you know, what's, what's been the cost of, and like what parts of yourself have you had to compartmentalize in order to become the leader that you are today, where you can speak and be heard? Absolutely. So like one of the, you're right, there's, there's a certainly a reality there. And it, I find it, it's a sad reality. You know, there's multiple worlds, there's certainly two worlds there for me, um, as I had to kind of achieve success in either wise, I feel like my life's purpose is to bring those together. So it's one world, right. And so, um, you know, I want to succeed in one world. Um, I want to succeed in, in, in everywhere I go, but I want to bring those worlds together that are truly inclusive. And so, you know, that I, I can succeed in, in you know, corp, in, in corporate governance, corporate operations, corporate management, um, but I don't have to check my Indian at the door. Um, you know, I don't think that's a, I don't want to, I don't want that to be a barrier. I don't want that to be, um, you know, 
uh, a problem or an issue for development growth, everything like that. So I think earlier in my career, much more, well, I'll just say it, I think assimilated. Um, I saw the ladder. I saw the corporate ladder as it was presented in society, right? And I absolutely wanted to climb that um, because I thought that's success. Wealthy, you buy things, material, houses, uh, you accumulate wealth, private wealth. Respect. And so, yeah, and and so that was that was the the dream, right? And so, um, you know, we've seen it on TV, I've seen it around us. We held that up, but it really started to unravel for me. Um, you know, as I the last ten years of my life, as I started working more in communities, started seeing the disengagement, the privilege, started seeing people have, didn't have access to the same services. Also, recognized that maybe I didn't have the same opportunity, right? I know I had struggles in education and things like that. I didn't have the same access and things like that. So geography privileges, and so uh, thinking a lot about that, like there was certainly um, a lot of cost. Like, and you know, I, I basically had to think like what. Who am I, right? And what do I value? What's important to me? Um, I've always had this kind of burning, I think, sense. It was, you know, it was it was smoldering, and then it just became a fire that consumed me. Was I started to value community wealth and impact and and things like that? You know, I didn't need all those things. I didn't need that. You know, I didn't need to accumulate. I love stuff. Don't get me wrong. I love shopping. I love buying things. I love nice things. I love experiences. Um, but at the same time, it wasn't the priority. Off the side of my desk became a whole nother desk. You know, it became, I invested so much of my time in this impact in this community wealth and everything like that. Um, super excited that I got to align who I was as a person with my capacity and capability in organization and an influence its growth and development. Um, you know, super excited. I never had to check any of me at the door. I brought my whole self and my whole self was valued and celebrated. And, you know, I got to be able to share that with everyone. It was a really transitional moment, right? In my time is like, you know, I'm not, and that's when I jump off the ladder and I felt, you know what, I need to create ladders. Maybe they're not ladders. Maybe they're just, you know, like steps, soapboxes, mounds, whatever. I just got to move people through, help people through that. Um, you know, I, I didn't want, I didn't aspire for the title anymore. I didn't aspire for that role. Um, you know, I didn't need to be the CEO of a corporate. I didn't need it. Um, I wanted it uh, not for the sake of authority, but I wanted it for the credibility and the informal authority to be able to move things forward. Or as even better put, I assumed it. I didn't necessarily want it. I just assumed it. And it just, um, interestingly enough, my leadership opportunities grew exponentially. Um, yeah, I jumped off that ladder. I became a leader much faster, much quicker, with much more opportunity. Um, dare I say, started making more money, um, you know, being able to command more, um, you know, value is important, respect your value and what you're worth and what you invest in that. But um, little side note, I remember one of our um, conversations when we were doing the MBA in one of our group chats, um, talking to one of our colleagues, Ben, and I remember telling them that. And I said, this is one of the things I think people learn too late in life. Invest in, in social and community and build leadership there because they're, they're hungry for volunteers and people. And the, and the capacity is a capacity. You don't necessarily need to get paid for the work that you do. I said, but you'll, be, you'll find it'll, you'll, you'll have more leadership opportunities than you can handle because of that investment. And you'll learn different aspects of organizational growth, design, management, everything like that. And so... One of the pieces of advice I left one of our 
with friends and colleagues, but it, it's certainly true. Um, it was never something intentional for me. It's like, wait a second, what's going on here? You know, like uh, demand for my time just drove exponentially, right? And and uh, um, you know, certainly more opportunity for engagement than I can handle. I, I'm hearing that real shift from, and, and again, like, I like how your personal story aligns with what I'm seeing as the transition that we're slowly going through in society is that scarcity mindset, that competition mindset to wait, now I have abundance, but it's coming from giving more. It's like the more you give, the more you get. And it's about, you know, symbiosis and collaboration and caring Mm -hmm. about something larger than yourself. And the weird part about it or the uh, counterintuitive part based on any of us who have been socialized in a Western model is that actually you do get more. You get more fulfillment when you are more giving. And I I think that's the the shift that people are making. Yeah, absolutely. One of the one of the things we talk about really quickly here is, is, you know, reciprocity, the concept of reciprocity. Right. Um, you give, you get back, you put it out there in the world, you get back. And absolutely the things I am a much wealthier person than I ever was. And I'm not talking fiscal wealth. Like I am talking about well-being. Um, so happy with the outcomes of my work. So exhausting, often frustrating, um, but certainly way more fulfilling, you know, than signing a mortgage or buying something or things like that. Right. Or, or watching your portfolio grow or anything like that. Um, you know, it's, it's, yeah, it's been incredibly fulfilling. So I feel like we're coming full circle here and I'm wondering if you can name what, you know, we've been talking about this in so many different angles, but I want you to name it. What is the paradigm shift that's needed from us as a species in this moment? We need to stop like returns and, and maximizing growth for the sake of growth and profit and returns and start to think about things sustainably. The world we leave our future generations, um, because yes, we're at a certainly at a crisis moment where um, the extraction and the development is far exceeding our ability to recover um, and our, our ability to reproduce that. And so we need to temper and manage that and really think about that. Organiz- I'm not saying all organizations, you know, we need to, yeah, we need to pivot and temper that as a society. Uh, one of the things that fascinates me is is just how much power, how much influence, and how much money is in such a small, infinitesimal, small percentage of the world population. That's not sustainable. I cannot, you know, there's no, there's very little impact there. And you know, the corporate dream is about we will get there. We have to contribute our value and our grit and our sweat, sweat equity. Uh, not necessarily get paid for it, but I mean a lot of our equity, and we're incentivized that way to get to that point. We can't run the entire world with 100% CEOs, you know. Absolutely not. We need everyone at every level, and we need all those people to be fully engaged, realize their value, um, and then be, you know, remunerated in respect to that value. Um, but yeah, that's as a society, we, and we need to demand accountability of the system, right? Accountability in terms of uh, our impact to environment, to people. Uh, to good practice, um, we need to demand that as a society, so that our organizations, um, you know, do things that I think distribute the wealth that they generate. I think more appropriately than they are doing now. Well, thank you for that, and thank you for taking the time to be on the podcast today. I I really think you are one of the um, more inspiring thought leaders of our time, 
and your vision for engagement and inclusion is inspiring with tangible actions, which I love about you. So thank you so much. I always enjoy our conversations. Absolutely. My pleasure, Kim. Anytime. Thank you.